Welcome to the MBP, the Micah Brown podcast, where I have the privilege of connecting you, my listeners, my audience, my friends with interesting people in an intentional way. I do that through two facets. One is I I know that right now we, we tend to miss out on the relational aspect of being fellow human beings. A lot of times we'll address other people based on the statistics that they're mentioning or the facts that they're mentioning and miss the whole point is that we're two human beings interacting. So the way I approach that is through connecting with my guests first in a personal way. What obstacles have they overcome? What is their background like? What's their family like? What personal things are they engaged in right now so that you can better connect with them, relate with them, and understand where they're coming from? Maybe you have something in common. Who knows? We won't know until we ask, right? And then the second aspect of that is by getting into what interesting things are they doing? That could be in their professional life. That could be in something that they're just involved with outside of their typical nine to five job. Um, It could be any number of things. Maybe it's just something on the public stage. Nonetheless, those are the two sides of the same coin that make up a person. And I want to get into knowing more about each side of uh, that, that person that I get to have on the show, get to interview. I really appreciate you listening right now. Make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss out on any great interviews that I have upcoming. And in addition to that, I want to thank you for supporting the podcast. If you want to continue to do so, you can, I'm going to have other ways coming up soon, but for now, by getting your free trial through audibletrial.com forward slash MBP, not only will you be supporting the podcast, but that gives you an easy opportunity to look up some of the books that we've mentioned on previous episodes, maybe some of the guests have mentioned, and listen to those for free for 30 days. I would strongly recommend you keep it because it's actually a really great resource to have um, anytime that you're driving or just doing something, maybe lawn care outside of your own home. Who knows what it is? But it's a great resource to have. So again, audibletrial.com forward slash MBP. And anytime you sign up for a free new account, that will support the podcast. So I thank you in advance for that. Finally, to some very specific people who have supported this podcast already. First, to Alvin Brown, who has helped set up this podcast, get it off the ground, get it going, and continues to support me behind the scenes. Second would be to the man, the myth, the legend who has created our music that we now use on this show, Isaiah Cruz. Phenomenal musician, even more phenomenal human being. And last but not least, I want to thank you to the sponsorship that Thelma's Treats has offered to the Micah Brown podcast. Guys, listen, here's the thing. Here's how this went down. I saw an ice cream sandwich and I thought that looks very delicious and it's super hot here in Austin, Texas. So what did I do? Like a normal sane human being, I bought the ice cream sandwich, ate it before I even made it to my car. I thought that's amazing. I need more of that in my life reached out to Thelma's and just said, hey, y'all make a fantastic product. I want more. Is there anything I can do to help you guys out? They said, just get the word out. I can't tell you how easy it is for me to tell you about Thelma's treats. If you need a good ice cream sandwich, if your kids need a good ice cream sandwich, if it's way too hot outside and you just need something to put a smile on your face, get yourself an ice cream sandwich. Treat yourself, as they say on Parks and Rec. That's all I got. Enjoy. On today's episode, I will be interviewing former president of Texas A&M University, Dr. Bowen Lofton. 
He was born in Hearn, Texas, a very small town just outside of Bryan College Station. He graduated from Texas A&M University in three years with a degree in physics with highest honors in 1970. After that, he earned a master's degree and PhD in physics from Rice University. That is something I could never do, but I applaud him for it. The many positions Dr. Lofton has held include being the chancellor of the University of Missouri, the director of NASA Virtual Environments Research Institute at the University of Houston, a professor of electrical and computer engineering and computer science at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, and the executive director of the Virginia Modeling Analysis and Simulation Center. However, my personal biased favorite position that he had was as my president at Texas A&M University, where he maintained that position for nearly five years, including his time as interim president. Lofton led Texas A&M to move from the Big 12 to the SEC, acquire a law school, and merge with the Health Science Center. Prior to being appointed interim president, he served as the CEO of Texas A&M University at Galveston, where he also held the position of Professor of Maritime Systems Engineering. For those who don't know, in the fall of 2008, when Hurricane Ike hit the Texas Gulf Coast, Dr. Lofton oversaw the evacuation of the multi-site Galveston campus and relocation of almost all of the 1,500 students, along with many of the faculty and staff, to the Texas A&M main campus in College Station. This is believed to be the first time that an entire institution of higher education was transposed onto another for an extended period of time. As if that was not enough, Dr. Lofton is the author or co-author of more than 100 technical publications, as well as a personal memoir titled The 100-Year Decision, Texas A&M and the SEC. Finally, Dr. Lofton's awards include the University of Houston Downtown Awards for Excellence in Teaching and in Service twice, the American Association of Artificial Intelligence Award for an Innovative Application of Artificial Intelligence, NASA Space Act Award, the NASA Public Service Medal, the 1995 NASA Invention of the Year Award, and the IEEE Virtual Reality Conference Career Award. Whew, despite all of these accolades, none of this can compare to his main goal. I can say from firsthand experience, his deep and sacrificial love for the Texas A&M students overpowers all other achievements. Quote, that's my presidency. I want, to, I want my legacy to be focused on students. It's what I want to be remembered for, he said. I believe he did that at Texas A&M. So without further ado, here is my guest, Dr. Bowen Lofton. Dr. Lofton, I appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm okay. It's been a busy week so far getting back from a trip and getting re-acclimated to the temperature of Texas after Colorado has been a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I imagine so. Colorado is one of my favorite places to go, so I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of you being up there. But you said allergies were bothering you up there. That may not be something I'm about. Towards the end, uh, it was clear uh, I was getting a bit of a you know, eye itch and, and uh, stifles from being exposed to things. It's a little bit behind us there, as you might expect, in terms of pollinating bodies out there. Right. I, I have issues with grasses and trees and flowers, the usual kind of things. Yeah, right now they're all dead here, so <laughs> you don't have to worry about that a, a whole lot. Well, I'd love to start with just a general background. Um, as much as you would want to share, just 
we're going to get into some more specifics and that sort of thing with questions and just conversation topics, but would love for you to just share with the people listening, maybe growing up higher education. I love the story about you meeting Karen. Um, but anything else having kids and your adult life that you'd like to share for some background? How much time do we have? Let's see. Um, exactly. One thing I'll mention at the beginning here, uh, you mentioned it in the bio you, you sent me as well. And, and, uh, yes, again here, uh, Hearn always comes up because I was born there. That's certainly a fact. And one can go to the courthouse and, and find that out for sure. But that was a one-day affair. Uh, I grew up in Navasota, which is about equal distance to the south of Aggieland. Okay. Yep. Hearn is to the north. And so that's something people uh, don't dwell on too much. They see I was born in Hearn. That's all as far as they go. But that really isn't a place I spent much time in. As I said, it was a one-day affair. Uh, I was conceived in Hearn. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my, uh, my dad worked for now what we call TextDot. It was called the oh, okay. back in those days. Uh, he operated a piece of equipment called a drag line, which is kind of a small crane uh, used to dig and, and drive pilings and things like that with. Uh, he was quite skilled at it, and so he was moved around. So he went job to job around this part of Texas. And while they were living in Hearn on a job he had, uh, uh, my mother became pregnant. And so she went to the doctor there, had, a, had an OB lined up and everything there. But uh, at the same time, when my dad learned his wife was pregnant, he went to his boss and said, I really want to have a permanent place to live. Uh, can I be placed somewhere, her or wherever it is you want to be, uh, where I can live and raise a family? And he was then sent to Navasota. And when she was six months pregnant, they moved to Navasota. But her doctor was back in Hearn. So when she went to labor, uh, my dad drove her to Hearn so uh, her doctor could deliver the baby, and I was born in Hearn Hospital. Uh, age one day, I moved back to Navasota. So it was a one day. Man, <laughs> Man that, that remind I actually was born in Jackson, Mississippi. So people think like, oh, you're from Texas. You grew up in Texas. And well, technically I was born in Jackson, but I was only there three months. You got me, you got me beat, you, you know, only one day in Hearn. But I, I have a similar... Yeah, I don't even count it. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But it was, yeah, it was Texas after all. But again, my hometown is Navasota. I spent all my years there through high school, and uh, that's the one I claim. My dad was really from there. Uh, he was born on a small ranch just east of Navasota, uh, which is still in the family. And uh, his father was born there as well. I was the first one in the family born in a hospital. So both my mother's side and my dad's side, you were born at home. And Man. you Midwife <laughs> came or the doctor came and delivered you. And I was born in a hospital, which was something new for the family, basically. Uh, later on in time, I became the first to go to college in the family, too. So a lot of firsts for me in, in many respects there. But I grew up in Navasota, which is a few thousand people uh, located just south of Aggie Land, as, as you all know, probably. Uh, it was a great place to be. We uh, Nobody locked their doors. Uh, everybody knew everybody. So if I got in trouble, everybody knew about it. <laughs> so... <laughs> good place to be. And, and that day and time was one that I, I treasure. And I'm afraid my children didn't see as much of it as I did. And your children will see even less of it, unfortunately, in terms yeah. of the, if you grew up in a place which is very safe uh, and very trusting uh, and very much a community of people who are trying to raise uh, the young people of that, of that little town or community they're in. Uh, that sort of thing is beginning to be quite difficult to find in this country today, unfortunately. Right. 
I grew up in a cul-de-sac, so it was very safe to just knock on any of the doors in the cul-de-sac. Almost all of them had kids, kickball, basketball, whatever. When it gets dark, come back inside. <laughs> that was it. So I went to public schools uh, in, in uh, Navasota. In those days, there wasn't public kindergarten. So I started first grade there and graduated from high school in 1967. Uh, I did go to kindergarten. My parents scraped the money together to put me in a private kindergarten when I was five years old. And there are a few people that I actually went from kindergarten through A&M together. So wow. classmates from kindergarten, from uh, public school, and also from Texas A&M. So not many of them, but a few. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, they, they know a lot about me. You don't want to hear, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, growing up in Navasota was uh, a good, it was a good thing to be a, a kid there. I could walk to school or ride my bike to school any day I wanted to, wasn't bad weather and, and uh, that's, how it, that's how it was. Uh, it was a small community basically. My, my dad works in his head for tex, what's called Textile today. Uh, his side business was cattle raising. His brother and he were in business together and, and raised cattle and my uncle was a a cotton farmer as well. So growing up there, when I got big enough, I, I chopped cotton in the spring. You probably know what that means. Chopped cotton means you go out with a hoe, and chop down the weeds, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and then uh, come the middle of the summer and late summer, we would be picking cotton. Uh, that's awful hard stuff in this country. Uh, the cotton my, my uncle raised was in the Brazos bottom land, just to the west of Navasota. And uh, the cotton was, was pretty tall. There, six-foot-tall cotton was common. Goodness. And of August, being down in a, in a, in a cotton row uh, with six foot of cotton on both sides of you, it was hot, sir. It was very hot. <laughs> yeah, with no wind, because I imagine wind's not passing through there, and it, they're plants, exactly so it's probably right. humid. And I wasn't, I wasn't really uh, very adept at picking cotton like the people I, I picked with. Uh, my uncle had about 60 people working for him. Uh, they were all black. I was the only white face and a whole bunch. And I did my best to pick with those folks, but I couldn't keep up with them. They were better than I was by far. Man. Because uh, they did that from their whole lives, basically. Finally, one day I told my uncle, I said, this is really hard work. I'm not making much money at this. <laughs> is there anything else I can do? And he said, well, uh, would you mind weighing the cotton the, the hands bring in and, and recording their weight in a book? And I'll be running around doing my thing, and you can stay there by by the uh, by the cotton field on a given day and do that. That was a much better job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably made as much money, and I uh, was under the shade tree with uh, some cold water. Not, not a bad place to be, in a sense. There you go. <laughs> well, that's how it was growing up there. I did a lot of fishing in the uh, Brazos River. Uh, caught a lot of catfish there. Uh, did a lot of help with my my uncle and my dad. I was only a child. My uncle wasn't married, so I was the only free help they had, basically. Uh, so I did a lot of hay hauling when I was growing up, a lot of fence building, uh, chasing cows, uh, riding a horse middle of the night. Uh, chasing cows was something I did quite a bit of. So it was quite an interesting way growing up there. Uh, but one thing I'll, I'll mention right away, yeah, my parents who never went uh, to higher education, in fact, my dad just finished sixth grade, uh, and he was told time to go to work by his father. He turned 12. Wow. And my mother did finish high school up in uh, Milam County, uh, Texas. Uh, so nobody had gone to college and, and uh, didn't know really what it was, but they knew it was a good thing. So my parents always made it clear to me, uh, I'm going to college. There was never any debate about that. 
Okay. Yep. And so I never questioned it. I just basically uh, set my sights on that and, and went ahead and did it. At age 16, interestingly enough, uh, I had kind of an epiphany uh, one day. I just decided I want to be a college professor. Uh, that was just a, interesting. I'm not sure why it happened. I can't point to any specific instance uh, of, of action that made that happen, but it uh, came to me one day. That's what I wanted to do. I probably read about it enough or heard about it enough to think that was something I wanted to do. And that became my, my goal. And I knew I had to you know, go, to, go to college. I had to get a graduate degree or two. I had to do certain things to be successful at getting into the kind of profession I wanted to be in. And that drove my decision-making quite a bit. Uh, my senior year in high school, I was applying to college. Uh, I did pretty well in high school, pretty well on the SAT uh, standardized tests. And so I had lots of colleges sending me literature. In those days, it was all mail. There was no internet, obviously, and no way to know about it otherwise. But uh, I'd already pretty well decided to stay in Texas. And I only applied to three schools. I applied to Texas A&M. I applied to uh, the University of Texas at Austin. And I applied to Rice University in Houston. And all three wrote back to me and accepted me. And beyond that, all three said to me, uh, we'll give you a tuition scholarship. And there you go. Excited me. I thought, wow, free college. Uh, but then I figured I wasn't free. <laughs> that even though tuition was covered, there were other costs uh, of going to college. And so that was going to be a challenge for someone in our socioeconomic status. Uh, and I pretty well resigned myself uh, not to go to college for a year. I told my dad, I, I better go get a job for a while and save my money so I could afford to go to college because I couldn't afford to go just on a tuition-only scholarship. And this was before we had these guaranteed student loans that are more common today for many students to pursue right. as a way to pay for education if they don't have the family money to do it. So that's where I was in the spring of uh, 1967. And I got this interesting letter from Texas A&M. This letter said to me, uh, because you indicated interest on your application in majoring in physics, uh, and because we have a former student who recently passed away and left money for the university to fund a scholarship for a physics student, we want you to have this other scholarship, which was a full ride scholarship, by the way. Wow. Made my whole life turn around. Uh, I can imagine. <laughs> I could afford to go to college right away. There wasn't going to be a waiting period of time to work and earn money. Uh, it meant that no worries about paying for it. Uh, although I got to tell you uh, what it cost in those days is not uh, going to be good for you to hear probably. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I never had a bill at A&M uh, apart from other things, but just the academic side of the equation, tuition, fees, and books never was more than $100 a semester. <laughs> wow. My tuition was $50 a semester, fixed fixed rate, how much you wow. took same rate like it is today in a sense, but much higher number today. And again, I never paid more than probably six, seven dollars for a textbook. And there were some fees we had to pay for helping to build Kyle Field up a little bit, things like that. Yeah. <laughs> I paid my fees, I paid my 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 books, paid for my tuition, and I had uh, less than a hundred dollars total cost per semester to go to school. Uh, that's a long ways from where it is today. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. Now there are single single books that are more than hundred dollars. Exactly. I mean, there are books today in accounting and things like that that cost two hundred fifty dollars. 
Uh, it's incredible. Uh, and so that's the way it was. And of course, that was a lot of money to me in those days, but I had the scholarship support to cover all that cost, and it was a good thing. But at the same time, I also worked. Uh, my, uh, my department offered me a job, a part-time job. So I worked 20 hours a week in the Department of Physics, uh, building equipment, fixing stuff, that sort of thing, doing inventory and such, various kinds of jobs like that. And uh, that was enough to give me plenty of spending money, basically. So I, I never, I emerged from college debt-free with money in my pocket, which is not a common occurrence. Not at all. <laughs> so that got me through my year. I also graduated in three years. I decided I wanted to go to grad school right away. Uh, there was a lot going on in the world, and this is the late 1960s. Uh, your parents weren't even born at that point in time, probably, or ver- barely born. Think, yeah, they were, they were young. I, I know my dad was born in the 60s, late 60s, somewhere. Yeah, so, you, you know, basically around that time frame, it'd be probably the earliest that parents of your, people your age would be born. So uh, the Vietnam War was raging at that point in time. Uh, deferments were available to students uh, who were going to school as undergraduates only. So here I was planning on graduate school, and we had the uncertainty of that. Once I graduated from a and I knew I'd be what was called 1A, which meant you were draftable immediately. And uh, draft was going on then. It was uh, many, many of my classmates from high school were, were drafted during this time period. So I was out there as a reality. Uh, so I went ahead and, and lined myself up to graduate in three years, but I also could have stayed another year and got a second degree. Uh, the reason for that was uh, the spring of 1970 was the time of the first draft lottery. So they actually went, went away from having each draft board just go ahead and, and draft people as they wanted to, to actually having a lottery uh, by your birth date. And that lottery wow. you got determined the likelihood of your being drafted. Uh, my number was 356. So uh, that pretty well guaranteed that if I graduated from AM in the spring of 1970, uh, I'd be able to go to grad school without being drafted. Uh, nice. I was prepared to be drafted. That wasn't something I, I, I was afraid of, uh, but didn't turn out that way. So I never served uh, our nation as a uh, member of the armed forces. I went to grad school instead. And uh, again, uh, I wouldn't say it, uh, was money driven like it was from the undergraduate years, but uh, all three places I applied, the same three places I applied for undergraduate education, I applied for graduate education, uh, Austin, uh, Rice University, and Texas A&M, all three accepted me. Uh, I was promised in all three places a, a stipend as a grad student, as you might expect. Uh, that was a time when the U.S. was trying to become uh, a more technologically-based nation. Uh, there was a lot going on. Uh, the Russians beat us into space. You may recall that thing called... Yeah, <laughs> it's just uh, a little piece of history. Little, little things like that. Uh, and so there were programs the government formed to actually encourage people to go into engineering and science. And that was part of the equation for me as well at that time. Uh, and there was research money flowing to universities as well to develop our technological base. And because of that, uh, people who majored in grad school in the sciences or engineering were almost always attracted uh, partially by being offered a, a stipend, money, uh, free tuition and, and some money besides that. So it was pretty well the same at all three schools. 
but Rice was a place that I had wanted to go to as an undergrad, but didn't see anywhere to afford it. And their scholarship offer was much less than A&M's. Uh, but I did go to Rice University in Houston as a, a grad student then in the fall of 1970 after graduating in May of that year from Texas A&M. And that was a good choice for many reasons. Uh, Rice was about 2,000 students then. It's about 6,000 now. Yeah. So it's, it was a small school, a private school, uh, but one that was predicated on science and engineering from the very beginning. Uh, when a man named William Marsh Rice uh, conceived of that university and uh, left money for it. He uh, he made it very clear what it should focus on. So Rice has degrees in all subject matter you might expect, but uh, they have been known for uh, their prowess in engineering and science uh, for their lifetime since about 1910 or so when they first started. So it was a good place to be. Uh, I was then moving from uh, Aggie Land to uh, to Houston, which was a, a big city. Uh, I got a place in Montrose, and if you know much about Houston, you know that was a pretty interesting part of town to live in. It was close to Rice, and uh, started my education there in the fall of 1970. Uh, you mentioned uh, my wife earlier in our conversation, how I met her, that had occurred on the Rice campus. Uh, she wasn't going to Rice, but she was nearby. She was going to graduate school across the street in the Texas Medical Center, uh, actually, uh, University of Texas system has a health science center, several of them, in fact, in the state, one of which is in Houston. And they had created, uh, just before I got to Rice, a thing called the Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences. It was a brand new idea to have this sort of a, of a, uh, a homogenization of many different areas of biomedicine uh, to give people a chance to pick and choose areas of, of specialization. And then my wife was attracted to that. So at that point in time, she was living in Dallas. Uh, she had moved there from Michigan after getting her undergraduate degree and got uh, a one-year degree uh, uh, from Baylor up in uh, Dallas in medical technology and then decided to go to grad school and she applied for and came to uh, this new program in, in Houston. And so she was across the street basically from Rice going to school there and I was at Rice doing my thing. And it so happened that one of my good friends in physics was dating this, this uh, student who was working in the same lab as uh, my future wife. And so one day, uh, this girl invited my wife to come with her to, to join her boyfriend and for Karen to meet me. Uh, we met in a bar. And uh, not just any old bar. Uh, it turns out at that point, we just created a place at Rice University called Valhalla which was a graduate student lounge. Uh, when I got to Rice in 1970, uh, the undergrads had a very nice place to congregate and enjoy, enjoy themselves uh, outside of class, but the grad students had nothing. <laughs> and uh, one day I was walking past the, the major structure on campus, Lovett Hall, the, the first building built at Rice, and saw uh, workmen working inside the building there actually doing a big renovation project and they were ripping out this beautiful oak paneling and uh, oak furniture that was built into the walls of what they called in the faculty club. Wow. Uh, and uh, that was being just thrown into a big heap of, of wood outside of the building there and I just stopped looked at that beautiful oak wood and I said to the uh, the guy who was foreman of the job I said uh, is this wood going to be just thrown away? He said yeah we'll just get rid of it. And I said to him, could I have it? He said, yeah, if you can haul it off, you can have all you want. But I had no way to haul it or no, no where to put it. 
So I went back and found some of my buddies. I said, look, you know, there's a really nice pile of wonderful old wood uh, being discarded right now over at Lovett Hall. We can have, uh, we can just find a place to put it. And somebody, it wasn't me, but somebody had the idea, if we can get this wood in a place, we can build us a very nice place to hang out. And so uh, we went to see a man named Margrave, who was the Dean of Graduate Studies at that time at Rice, and said, Dean Margrave, we need a place to hang out. And uh, he Love thought that. about it, said, come back tomorrow and I'll see what I can, what I can do. I came back the next day to see him. And he said, I found you the ideal place, the basement of the chemistry building. Well, this is Houston, Texas. Uh, the water table is very high there. And not many places have basements in Houston for a good reason. So, for sure. <laughs> this building we, uh, we had chemistry in uh, was a, one of the earlier buildings on campus, built in the 1920, 1920s, actually. And so it was a pretty old building by 1970. Uh, and the basement never been used. It was unfinished, dirt floor, and it was rat infested, uh, full of mold and mildew and you name it. And Gosh. This. Uh, so that's what we had though. So we, we gathered the wood together that had been taken out of Lovett Hall, hauled it over there and cleaned the place up and put together a, a beautiful bar, built a new bar out of the wood we had, paneled the place, put the, the furniture in place, and it was, it was beautiful to us. And we became the immediately the world's largest distributor of Scheinerbach beer. Wow, what a claim to fame. Always all, all sold there was Scheinerbach beer. <laughs> and so once a week, uh, we'd drive over to Shiner, Texas, to the brewery there, which only sold around Shiner, Texas, and picked up seven uh, kegs of Scheinerbach beer and trucked it back to Houston, Texas. It was the only place in Houston or even close to Houston you could get Shinerbach beer. Wow, that's all. Awesome. And so we, we had the, uh, the uh, uniqueness, shall we say, in Houston of having this, this really good, good tasting beer, we thought anyway. Uh, later on, we added snacks and wine and things like that. But that's where, that's where it was. And I volunteered one day a week to bartend there. And that's where I met my wife. Uh, Karen came in with her friend Deborah one day and to see her boyfriend, John, and who was a classmate of mine in physics. And uh, we met over the foosball table in Valhalla. And uh, that was the beginning of now a almost 48 year marriage. Wow. So for those listening, if you go to the, uh, to Rice University and you know about this place, I, I hope you are taking notes in your brain that the man talking helped to build Valhalla, which I must say getting rid of Oak paneling, I got to wonder how much that'd be worth. Like just the wood itself, you know, Again, this was, this was very, I mean, the, the first president of Rice, whose name is Lovett, uh, he was 40 years the president. He came here as a young man. Wow. He designed, the, he traveled the world for a year, visiting every major university in the world, came back and designed a university, not only academically, but also in terms of structure. He laid the campus out. He actually... Uh, conceived of the building designs, all that sort of thing. That's what he did. He was an amazing man. So he picked the oak paneling. Exactly. And, and they, he imported craftsmen from all over the world. They, they, had, they had masons come in from England to do the stonework. Uh, so they, they wasted no expense at all on bringing to Houston the very best craftsmen they could find. And they used the best materials they could find. And this was the original oak paneling of the first building built on the Rice campus. And it's still there in Valhalla today, if you go visit it. <laughs> wow, I feel like I'm getting a tour. 
and I've never even been to, to Rice's campus. Now I want well, to go. If you ever go there, it's a place you want to stop into. It's still in the same location, the basement of chemistry. <laughs> That's so, incredible. I love that. It's well, incredible. It really is incredible. I, so it gives I, you a sense of sort of my life through, through Rice. I, I finished up my PhD work in 1974, uh, less than four years after arriving at Rice as, as a grad student. Uh, I defended my dissertation in July. Uh, of that year. But if you look at my uh, diploma, it says 1975 on it. Rice only has one graduation a year, and that's in May. Uh, so I didn't graduate till May of 1975, but I defended my dissertation and finished it all up in July of 1974. And then I spent another year and a half almost at Rice as what's called a postdoctoral fellow doing research while I was trying to find a job, uh, which was hard. I wanted to be a professor again. That was my goal. And uh, quite frankly, jobs in the, in the academy were very hard to find in 1974-75. So I struggled. And uh, then uh, we, we had interesting problems that year. My, my wife and I got married in, in the uh, fall of 1972. Uh, she worked on her PhD as well. Uh, she wasn't quite uh, as fast as I was at getting it all done. So I graduated first, even though she started the same time I did. Uh, but we then uh, decided to look at children as a possibility. You know about that a bit. And so my Just wife a little bit. Uh, in 1975, and um, I was uh, planning on having a two-year job, basically, at Rice. So just at my, at my one-year anniversary of that job, my, my, uh, my professor came in and told me the bad news that he had lost his grant and uh, I would be done uh, at the end of November of that year, <laughs> which was a huge shock, shock to me. Significant. And uh, my wife was pretty far along in her pregnancy. And uh, here we were uh, thinking we had another year basically plus to get a job and find where we wanted to go. And I was going to be out quickly, much more quickly than that. So that was a very difficult time in our lives there, figuring it all out. Uh, my wife had a small stipend where she was working, but it wasn't enough to support me and her and a baby, <laughs> uh, quite frankly. So I was sort of desperate and I applied for many jobs and uh, got many no's. So I had lots of disappointment basically over about a three month period there as I looked for a job, not just in academia, but also in industry as well. And uh, most places said to me, well, uh, we like what you can do, but you're overqualified for this job. Or we know- oh, no. Uh, you'll move on to something else pretty quickly. You won't be a long-term employee here. So I got a lot of no's for the kind of the wrong reasons, I thought anyway. And that was kind of a low point for us right there. Uh, and uh, I was lucky to be able to uh, uh, hear about a part-time academic job. So uh, I, I just heard through the grapevine, basically because a department chair had called Rice looking for somebody in physics and uh, one day the secretary there who still saw me occasionally said, we got a call from this guy over at the University of Houston downtown campus who wants a uh, physics person, but only has a part-time job. And I'm sure you won't care about that, but I want to mention to you anyway. So <laughs> I went and saw him and uh, on the spot, he offered me a job. Uh, and I became what the, what the academy calls a full-time part-timer. <laughs> so I, I taught a full-time <laughs> load but I got paid part-time <laughs> for it. Basically. Goodness. But I was glad to have anything. Uh, uh, 
Uh, so the job started in, in mid-January of, of 1976. Uh, Karen gave birth uh, on January the 17th to our first child. So I started my job and had a baby almost the same day. <laughs> and uh, that's I eventful. Have a place to go. But I came down with a really bad case of the flu uh, on the 18th of January. <laughs> Goodness. So I was struggling trying to teach. I couldn't get out of bed. Uh, we had a brand new baby. Uh, it was a very, very challenging time for me physically and emotionally. My mother-in-law had come to stay with us to help with the baby, which I thought was a good thing. But she and my wife got into a huge fight. Uh, and so I had to call my father-in-law and say, come get your wife. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and I couldn't get out of bed. <laughs> I was so sick. <laughs> it was, uh, I won't go into all the details of that. It takes too long, basically. But uh, it was the low point occurred right around there, too, for me. Goodness. Uh, that's so everything happening at once. That's, yeah. that's incredible. But that's but, how uh, life happens, right? It's three things. I, I got over it. Um, the basis for this whole thing, though, my mother-in-law was really... Uh, my wife was still in grad school. She was trying to get her dissertation done and needed to get back to the lab as soon as she could. So we had talked to her pediatrician about the baby and how we handled this. She wanted to breastfeed the baby and, and uh, normally that's a every four hour kind of schedule when you're breastfeeding. And uh, she said, I just can't make it work. I can't go to the lab and take the baby with me. I can't come back home every, every four hours and, and nurse get anything done. He said, well, look, you know, you can certainly push that to six hours. If you don't mind the baby crying a lot the first couple of the days, you can move the baby to a different schedule by just being strong. So just don't feed the baby except every six hours. The baby's going to cry and cry and cry. But after a couple of days, uh, she will actually drink more milk and she'll be okay. Well, that's the context. My mother-in-law was there thinking that her daughter was trying to kill her grandbaby. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the fight. It was all about that, the feeding schedule. <laughs> now I can completely understand what happened. Now you understand basically <laughs> the reason for all this. this yeah, having been on the ground level of a woman trying to breastfeed and all the unsolicited advice and input you get for parenting and breastfeeding and even marriage, it's, yeah, I can definitely understand. But it was, uh, it was challenging trying to start a new job teaching. I, I taught labs and tutorials and things like that quite a bit before as a grad student, but never been responsible for a class of my own. So I'm trying to do that, trying to have a baby, trying to get over being sick with the flu, all these things at one time, essentially. I'll never forget, uh, we only had one car too. So my wife got past her first few, few days with the baby there. She wanted to start back to her lab. And so she needed the car. And so how do I get to work? So there's a bus line running down Main Street. We live right off Main Street in, down in Houston uh, near Rice. And I was out there every morning catching the bus to go ride down to the campus uh, in downtown Houston. And about a week into this, uh, I was sitting there waiting for the bus and this car pulls up right in front of me and this head leans out and says, you want to ride? It's one of my students. So <laughs> here's a student in my class. That's great. Houston. And he sees me waiting for a bus and stops by in his car and picks me up and takes me to work that day. <laughs> that was an interesting experience too, you know, to kind of fit into the situation where I was a brand new teacher trying to impress my students with how great I was. And here I was you know, begging rides out there on the street side. So it was an interesting time for me. And uh, so I, I had a bunch of classes that semester to deal with. It was a 
you know, challenging thing to be able to put together all of my notes for the first time and be able to, to be effective as a teacher, essentially. And uh, again, the job only was only one semester. And uh, I was worrying about the future as well. So uh, I got, a, I got my, a, a note from my, my boss who said, come in and see me. And he said, I got a call from another U of H campus. Uh, they want a, a full-time person there this fall for a one-year appointment to replace somebody who's going away for a sabbatical leave. And so I ended up uh, going over interviewing for that and getting this job at the other campus nearby. Uh, and it was a full-time job. It paid a reasonable wage. It was a full-time job, reasonable teaching load and so on. And, and so I was sort of really happy I had at least one more year lined up of employment there. Uh, and then uh, that, that, that boss there called me in before classes even started and said to me, uh, I got a call from this uh, A&M campus down in Galveston, Texas. Uh, they have a tenure track position for a, for a physics person. Uh, and I want you here. I've already hired you here. I know, I know you've agreed to be here, and uh, I, I can't hold you to that if there's a really good tenure track job someplace else, which is That's incredible. Position I can ever offer you here. So I went down to uh, Galveston, Texas, to interview for a job there. I'll never forget this. I, I met the department chair there. It was the middle of August in Galveston, Texas. Okay, you can imagine what the temperature and humidity were like there. Terrible. That's what the temperature I wore, was. I wore a suit and tie, sir. Oh my uh, gosh. To impress my, uh, my department uh, head down there. And I drove up to his office there, went in, and he was dressed in a Hawaiian shirt. Of course he was. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he promptly put me into his T-Bird convertible and drove me around Galveston in my suit and tie. To cook. Sweating profusely. I know. <laughs> The only thing I can, if I can interject, the only thing I can relate to with this is when I interned in DC, which I know you've been to Virginia. I understand it's north of Texas, but it's so humid and nasty there. And walking from where I got off at Farragut West to walk all the way up Connecticut Avenue, it's terrible. And you just sweat through your jacket and shirt and everything. You're just dripping. (laughs) I fully appreciate that, sir. So uh, my little driving around town with, with Jim McCloy uh, resulted in a job offer the very same day. <laughs> I said, well, let wow. me go home and talk to my wife anyway. And uh, so we, we uh, basically agreed it was the right thing to do. So I called him back uh, on Monday morning and said, You're my, I'm your guy. You know? So I started there about a week later uh, on a tenure track position. Uh, which lasted only a year, by the way, because I was then recruited to come back to the University of Houston downtown campus where I'd been okay. at for as a part, full-time part-timer the year before. Uh, the guy I'd replaced there for one semester didn't come back again, and they they got to know me and like me, I guess, and thought I was a pretty good teacher, and, and they said, we want you back here full-time in a tenure-track position, and they were offering... Uh, uh, 50% more money than I was getting at, at uh, Texas A&M Galveston. At the they really time. wanted you. <laughs> that was important. <laughs> so I, I said yes to that, and the rest is history there. I spent 23 years then at the University of Houston, uh, two different campuses over time. Uh, and uh, that was uh, the biggest chunk, really, of my academic career was right there in Houston, Texas, at those two campuses. And a lot of fondness for them, uh, even after all these years here. So after that, uh, I was, uh, I became, uh, I ran a large research facility in, in Houston, 
that was a, sp a spinoff of my years at NASA, which I could go into in another story time for you as well. But I did work at NASA Johnson Space Center, not for them, but I worked there as a researcher. Uh, and uh, that was a wonderful part of my life as well. And one of the most uh, probably defining parts of my life was my years at the Johnson Space Center. And then went from there to, uh, uh, to Virginia for five years. And then I was recruited to come back to Texas when a man named Robert Gates was our president at Texas A&M. Uh, he was looking for a vice president uh, who would be the head of the Galveston Branch campus where I had actually taught at for one year there you go. in 1976-77. So life comes full circle sometimes as well, my friend. It's pretty, pretty amazing about that. So I ended up uh, moving back to, to Texas in, in 2005. And uh, we lived in Galveston, but I was also at College Station at least one day a week, uh, sometimes two days a week because of the, the roles I had there being, uh, being uh, reporting to people here at Texas A&M College Station, but, but actually being responsible for the Galveston campus. And that was another good part of my life. Uh, I couldn't have asked for a better way to transition from a research researcher, teacher, uh, administrator at that level to being a university president and having the ability to run that campus in Galveston for, for four years and learning the craft of being a university leader in a place that was small enough and big enough, small enough to really uh, feel comfortable. Uh, I got to know every student, every faculty member and every staff member there. I'll pause right there and give you a chance to think about where you want me to go next with this conversation. Well, no, I mean, you've, you've mentioned all the way through your, I mean, your, your life to right. You're knocking on the door of transitioning from Galveston to being the interim president at A&M. So please, by all means, just fill in the gap for us. What was that like? I know that I mentioned how you moved everyone from uh, the campus down in Galveston away and I, I think I even had a question later about that but we're at the moment now so what was that transition like how did that even come up I mean well, the weight of that decision on your shoulders for that campus and all the people the human beings involved uh, must have been tremendous but I'd love to hear what let me like. let me uh, mention two things about 2008 that was uh, the most challenging year of my entire life was 2008 I had some challenges earlier and I had challenges later but uh, that year was uh, defining in, in so many ways, Micah. Um, it wasn't just Hurricane Ike. Uh, in June of 2008, uh, I was on the docks in Galveston, Texas, uh, saying uh, so long and, and uh, you know, to six people, four students and two faculty members at Texas A&M Galveston, who were embarking on a regatta which took them to Mexico, uh, a, 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 a kind of a regular thing. This has happened. Uh, we, we had this uh, sailing team there who was quite, quite good, and they wanted to compete for a prize in this particular regatta. So I was there to say goodbye to them uh, Friday afternoon about 4 o'clock as they left the dock. And uh, at 4 a.m. Saturday morning, my phone rang, and I was told by the operations person on campus that, uh, the, the people on the, on the sailing boat had failed to check in uh, that early that morning as they, as they were supposed to have. And he was worried. Uh, he couldn't reach them on the satellite phone and they didn't check in 
for schedule. And so I immediately got dressed and went into the campus there. We began trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, around 5.30 a.m., I called the Coast Guard and asked them to begin looking for this, this boat. Uh, they tried to raise them also by, by radio and satellite phone without success. And by later on that day, they thought things, things were not working, working right. So they, they put up some aircraft. Uh, they found the boat right away, uh, but no people. Uh, so they had aircraft that found the boat uh, in the Gulf floating upside down with no keel. Now, this is a uh, about a 35-foot racing sailboat with a 6,000-pound lead keel on it. So the boat was upside down in the Gulf, and there was a jagged hole where the keel was normally be attached to the hull. And uh, that's all that could be seen from the air, basically. And there were no people close by that they could find, and it got dark then. So this is, this is Saturday night we're talking about right now. So I immediately notified uh, the families of the six people involved. There were four students. Uh, there were two faculty members. One was a retired Coast Guard commander uh, who was the captain of the boat and ex very experienced uh, seaman uh, and sailor. Uh, he was accompanied by another faculty member uh, named Roger Stone, who was also a very experienced sailor and four students. Uh, and none could be seen before dark that night in, in the Gulf. So that created a huge situation for us to deal with. I notified my boss in College Station, who was at that time Elsa Morano. Uh, Dr. Morano had become the president of AM after Gates had left to become defense secretary. Uh, and so she was my immediate superior at that time, of course. I notified her about this, and we began to assemble a, an action team there to work with the families and also to coordinate with the Coast Guard as we continued the search. So uh, uh, that night, uh, we, we had uh, searches going on, and uh, this is Saturday night now, so we're probably 24 hours or more beyond the time when the, when the boat actually uh, had, a, had a problem and, and ended up capsizing. And so uh, uh, the Coast Guard was looking for them, and nighttime, it turns out, is a good time to look because uh, if people in the ocean, which is black at that time of uh, the day, have a flashlight, uh, guess what? They're easy to see. Yeah. And so that was sort of the, the goal we had. Um, the, uh, the problem basically was that uh, it's a big ocean out there, even the Gulf. Mexico is a pretty good sized body of water. And so yeah. uh, they searched all night without success. Uh, then we go through the, uh, the next day, which is a Sunday, uh, all day without success as well. And uh, I'm beginning to get extremely concerned because we haven't found any sign of any people uh, anywhere near where that boat was located. Uh, and so uh, that night, though, uh, a Coast Guard helicopter spotted a flashlight uh, in the ocean. Uh, it was Commander Conway, uh, the captain of the boat, uh, retired Coast Guard officer, and he, uh, he noted he was certainly aware of a helicopter nearby, and he had a flashlight with him and was able to signal them, and they were found. So uh, I immediately called the families. Uh, that were involved here all, of all six people and told them that we had, we had found them. 
Well, uh, about half an hour later, uh, the Coast Guard had sent a second helicopter out to actually effect the rescue. That had the right kind of lifts and everything on board to lift people out. And they called back and said, we've only got five people pulling out of the ocean right here, uh, not six. And uh, so that told me something was really amiss, of course. And uh, I had to wait a little bit to find out who was missing. It was Mr. Stone, Roger Stone. Uh, one of the two faculty members on board uh, was missing. So I'd already called his wife and family and told them we had found the group. I had to call her back. I called her on the way to the hospital in Galveston to tell her that her husband was not among those we had so far rescued, but we were not going to stop looking for him. But that there was no reason for her to continue to the hospital because he wasn't going to be on board the helicopter that came to Galveston with the five survivors we had so far uh, found. So uh, I won't say much more about that. Uh, I did, as soon as we had first light on, on Monday, I did uh, dispatch a salvage company to the boat uh, with divers. And so they went right to where the sailboat was located. We knew where it was very precisely. Uh, divers went in and found Mr. Stone's body. This is about probably 1 p.m. On, on Monday. So I, uh, you know, I, I, I felt it was incumbent on me to go and tell uh, Mrs. Stone uh, about the, the confirmation her husband was not going to come home again alive. And I brought with me a, a PhD psychologist who was the head of our counseling service at the Galveston campus. On the way to her house, he told me how it's gonna go. He said, she's going to see you as the face of the institution that took away her, her husband. So expect her to direct her, her anger at you. Um, and I heard those words, but I didn't understand those words very well. So one of the most uh, difficult and profound moments of my life occurred when I walked into her home in Clear Lake City, uh, southeast of Houston. And the moment I walked in the door uh, and she saw me, she knew why I was there. I had not called her in advance. I didn't want to have it be a telephone conversation. I wanted to be a face-to-face -face conversation. And she knew as soon as she saw me, before I said a single word, that I was there to tell her that Roger wasn't coming home, alive anyway. And she ran right up to me, got in my face, uh, and called me every name you can imagine. Uh, I've never been hated so much in my life. It was an extraordinarily difficult moment psychologically for me to have this much hatred directed at me personally. Uh, it was, a, and that's what I've been warned about by my psychologist. He had told me that was going to happen, and it happened. I didn't understand it till it happened. And uh, I mean, she threw me out of the house. She said, get out of my sight immediately. So I walked outside. And the one thing that helped me keep some sanity that day happened then. Uh, the yard was covered by neighbors and friends who were there to support her and her family. Uh, she had two children. Uh, uh, she and Roger had two children, a, a boy and a girl. And the young man who was 14 years old walked out behind me uh, on his own and came up to me when I was standing in the yard there talking to people about uh, the death of his, his dad. He said to me, forgive my mother. She's really upset right now. But now tell me how my dad died. I could tell him 
the story, the true story of her, his dad being a hero, because his dad had actually saved two students that night before when he died, two times before when he died. Uh, when the boat lost its keel, it was fairly brisk winds. It was, it was heeled over quite a bit. The keel fell off in the middle of the Gulf, and immediately the boat rotated upside down. That's what happens. Uh, the sails were, were full of wind, and it rotated upside down, and immediately Roger and two students who were down below sleeping were in an upside-down world, totally dark, filling with water. You can imagine how frightening and difficult that was to respond to it. Roger had the good sense to wake up the two guys, push them out the hatch with one life jacket he had found, and he turned to go back into the hall to get a second life jacket or a third life jacket uh, for himself and the other student and never got out. But the two students did get out and did survive with the three who were on deck who had, who had fallen off uh, when, the, when the boat capsized. So they had four life jackets and five people. They rotated among themselves for two days to keep themselves alive and they survived. Sunburnt, dehydrated, but they survived. Roger didn't, he never got out after we went back in the hull again to find more life jackets. But he was truly a hero and he saved two people's lives. And I was able to tell his son that, and that helped me heal as well. Uh, Linda Stone and I are friends now. Uh, she came and apologized to me for how <laughs> uh, she responded. Uh, but it was a very hard moment for me uh, to get past. You know, I'll never forget that moment in my life. It was, it was singular in so many ways. Uh, and I've talked to people, especially military people, who have gone through that very exercise of going to a home and telling a spouse and family that their husband or mother is not coming home again because they were killed in, in, in combat. And they said that's how it happened to them. And they also said to, to me that no matter how many times they've done this, it never gets any easier. So again, if I had to define a defining moment in my life, that was one of my defining moments right there. It was very hard. So that was June of 2008. Uh, September 2008, we were visited by a friend named Mike that, uh, that caused me to have to evacuate the campus in Galveston and ultimately to move about 2,000 people to College Station. Uh, that was a very difficult, not moment, but semester <laughs> for us. Uh, yeah. Uh, Hurricane Ike uh, came up fairly suddenly in the Gulf. Uh, when I got to Galveston as the uh, leader there, uh, my very first day on campus, I had my, my second in command in my office who had been there for a very long time. And I said to him, uh, this is May. I said, hurricane season starts June 1. Tell me about hurricanes. <laughs> and so uh, he brought with him two, uh, two big binders uh, one binder was a very, very extensive analysis of which weather models to trust, which ones not to trust. So they had done a lot of experience at Galveston, you know, looking at storm tracks, looking at the various predictive models that exist for hurricanes, and finding out which ones really seem to be more reliable than others. So this book was about, you know, which ones to pick and how to make the decision about to evacuate or not evacuate. Well done, well exercised. They'd gone through many evacuations there. So this was a well thoroughly researched and put together document and process for deciding 
about leaving the campus or not. And the second binder was an extensive checklist of what to do if you evacuated. You know, here's what you can take with you, here's what you leave behind, here's how you secure it. Very well exercised, very well documented as well. And so uh, he turned and looked at me after those two books were, were, were gone through with me and said, what, what questions do you have? I said, where's the third book? He said, what do you mean third book? There is no third book. I said, don't you have a business continuity plan? I mean, what happens if you have to evacuate and shut the campus down? How do you get back in operation again? Uh, we don't have one of those, he said. <laughs> so it was uh, my first day on the job. And uh, I immediately called Bob Gates. And I said, Bob, I need some help. I said, I, I, I don't have a plan here for business continuity if we are forced to close because of a hurricane. Uh, and I really think we'll have to probably move people to uh, College Station if we don't have the ability to, to continue classes here quickly after an evacuation. He said, well, by all means, take care of it. Put together a team. So I put together about a 60-person team, uh, half of them from College Station, half from Galveston, and they worked about six months putting together our first plan of how to recover from a hurricane. And uh, that was done in 2005, okay? Which I have to say, it, what you're saying sounds obvious, but when you know, when you're in the moment, people planning, you know, how would you respond to the hurricane and all that? It's not necessarily the first thing that would come to mind, but then, you know, here you are saying, I feel like you have parts of the picture. I can't say why it wasn't done before. I mean, uh, earlier in time, there'd been a hurricane that came across West Galveston Island. It wasn't a big hurricane, but uh, it forced an evacuation. The campus could not reopen quickly and the campus almost closed up completely forever. It was that close. It was a very near thing uh, earlier in time about the campus having to close down because of a hurricane and not really being able to come back quickly. And, there, and they had had that experience already, but they had not learned from that the need to do a, a careful plan. And they hadn't even thought back at that time of going to College Station. So we had a plan in 2005, by the end of that year, of what to do. And 2008 occurs. In September, we have this Hurricane Ike. Uh, in the Gulf. It's, it's growing rather rapidly, heading right towards Galveston. So on Tuesday of that week, I declare an evacuation. So we had every student moved off campus by the end of the day on Tuesday of that week. Uh, most went to their homes or went home with other friends and whatever. Uh, those who were international and those with no family to go to quickly or close by, uh, we had a bus come down from College Station, an Aggie Spirit bus, and take them back to College Station to stay there. So that's where we were Tuesday night of that week. Uh, I actually left on Thursday afternoon uh, to evacuate the island. It was, it was a complete evacuation uh, was declared for the entire island and only certain people were allowed to stay behind. Uh, I left behind my police force uh, at AM Galveston and left behind three officers uh, to take care of our training ship. We had a 35,000 ton vessel docked at the campus and so we had tugs come over and move it across the channel in Galveston to a more sheltered uh, docking space there. Uh, and I left them on board because uh, as hurricanes come, the tides rise. And if you have a boat, in this case a big ship, tide, uh, it's going to snap the lines, basically. So you have to be slacking yeah. the lines. So these three guys were there to slack the lines as the water came up and still keep the boat securely fastened to the dock. 
and they did that during the storm successfully. Uh, so uh, hurricane passed right over Galveston proper, right over the campus, basically. I remember. Yep. The seawall worked perfectly. Uh, everything worked fine until the storm passed over Galveston and went right up the Houston Ship Channel. And ahead of itself, it pushed a lot of water. And when it got to yep. Houston uh, and went on to the north, the water came back and hit the backside of Galveston, 11 foot wall of water hit the backside of Galveston, which is unprotected basically, and swept across the island, which has highest points about 13 feet. So it gives you a sense of how that worked. The, the seawall successfully protected the seaward side of the main Galveston Island where it exists, but there was nothing on the other side that the, the uh, other side of the island, the backside, the north side of the island to protect it. And that wall of water did extraordinary damage to the, you know, to the, uh, to the, to the city of Galveston. Uh, but the campus was pretty well okay. The, the campus was uh, damaged around the waterfront. We lost some boats and docking and things like that. But the main buildings were stout and they came through fine. Uh, but the problem was the bridge to Pelican Island where the campus, main campus was located was partially washed out. And uh, the infrastructure of Galveston was totally down. There was no power, no water, no nothing. And so I realized uh, this happened. Uh, the hurricane passed over the campus around 2 a.m. on Saturday morning. Uh, by Sunday, I had reports back from my police about the situation there. And I knew we couldn't get back in operation quickly. So I called Elsa Morano and I said, uh, to her, we're going to have to execute our plan, which means moving people to College Station. And she authorized that. And so we began the process on that Sunday afternoon of uh, planning for a return. We had closed the campus on Tuesday. Nine class days after we evacuated, we were back in operation in College Station. And uh, that was a result of the plan we had and also the hard work of That's hundreds, incredible. hundreds of people. Uh, I think only Aggies could have done that. Only Aggies had the <laughs> spirit and the can-do attitude to say, uh, we can do this, even though anything, any rational person would say we can't do this without maybe a month of preparation. We did it in nine days. And so uh, we were experiencing a record enrollment in College Station. We were two weeks into the semester. And here we were adding uh, about 1,500 students and about 400 faculty and staff somehow to the campus. And it was a very, very difficult fit. If, if I might add from a student perspective, I remember that happening. And I remember the, the attitude from the students was just, bring it on. You know, welcome to our class. If we need to scoot over, we'll scoot over. If you need a place to live, like we'll find you a place to live, not a big deal. And I, I remember it was very much open arms, Come on in. We know you're kind of running away from a, a terrible situation. Come on in. You're fine. So that was, was very. Way. I mean, we were we were welcomed in every way you can imagine. Uh, John Van Alstein was the uh, commandant of the Corps of Cadets in College Station. Then uh, he actually added a third person to every fish's room uh, in the Corps dorms because the Corps of Cadets had to go somewhere, and so the Corps of Cadets. Uh, the fish and the Corps cadets from Galveston went into the fish rooms uh, in College Station. Uh, we rented the entire Plaza Hotel at the corner of Texas and University, which was a dump. 
Uh, we put three. It no longer exists. <laughs> it exists. We had faculty and, and residents of Bryan College Station taking kids into their homes. We used churches for classrooms. We had Saturday labs. Everything you can imagine was done to keep things moving, to keep continuity of the educational experience intact. I had judged if we were missing class for more than 10 days, we couldn't recover the semester. We missed nine days. So we had one day to spare. Uh, it was tough. Uh, the freshmen especially had just gotten settled in Galveston. Here they were uprooted and sent to college. Yeah. Uh, you know, after two weeks of classes and it was really hard on them, uh, but they're a resilient bunch. And uh, I can't say it was an easy semester for anybody, but we got it done. Uh, we went back to Galveston, had December graduation uh, in Galveston, 105 Aggies walked the stage there and got their degrees. And that wouldn't have happened without what we did. And we resumed classes, uh, regular, regular classes in January of 2009 in Galveston. Uh, so by all measures, objectively, uh, we came through in a wonderful way there, thanks to the plans and the work of everybody involved here. I spent about the first month in College Station and then went back to Galveston to, to oversee the the restoration of the campus services and things like that. I uh, left my second in command, uh, uh, Rodney here in College Station to uh, manage things here, but I had a great team here and never worried one bit. Uh, I called every day, we talked every day about things, but we had good people here uh, to take care of things and the students here in, co in College Station. And I went back and worked with FEMA and the contractors and and other staff stayed behind to get the campus back in shape again for returning the students there in December and January of that year, next year. And so it was, it was an extraordinary experience again, one I don't wanna repeat, but it taught us a lot about ourselves, certainly. That's incredible. Um, just, first of all, I, I had experienced the, like I said, the student side in College Station of that merging of those two campuses and and I remember I mean I remember even in College Station the localized flooding and I remember thinking is it really like that bad and then I, the pictures start coming in and you start seeing what can happen when like you said the the effectively a tidal wave coming back uh, and hitting everything is is incredible and, and not in the good way uh, definitely a respect for nature was birthed from that experience during all this, have, having even the, the sense of mind of planning ahead for something that was to one degree an inevitability, to another degree it was always a question of how bad would it be, right? But as you've navigated some pretty difficult experiences here, um, who have been your sources of inspiration, whether personally, professionally, role model, uh, to uh, maybe even to get you through that difficult time or others like it that obviously don't compare in the magnitude, but uh, to some degree, who are your role models? Well, there are many. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll say this, uh, uh, Donna Lang, who was a uh, the student affairs lead in Galveston was an extraordinary asset to me and to the campus in general. Uh, she truly loved the students the way I do. Uh, she is a graduate of the Galveston campus. Uh, 
uh, and she's worked there ever since she graduated. So she never left basically. And uh, so she was an inspiration and, and she had a huge, huge impact on our success in terms of relocating people here and getting things running again. But there were, there were 60 people, uh, Micah, who worked together to do this plan and they, came, they were still around both in Galveston and in College Station three years later and they came together and they were the nucleus of those who made this happen. I wasn't, I was just there, okay? I wasn't doing what they did. They, they did the grunge work night and day. I didn't sleep for a month, nor did they. Uh, we just got it done. Uh, Rodney McClendon was my deputy in Galveston then. He was a great asset. I, I asked my former deputy to come out of retirement and come back and help again. Uh, he did that. Uh, so I, I, can, I can point to so many people who were part of that equation of success then for that. But taking a step back and asking, you know, who, who uh, has really influenced me, there are others I want to mention. Uh, I spent a number of years, again, not working for NASA, but working at NASA Johnson Space Center. And the man who actually brought me there and allowed me to stay there for that period of time and, and worked with me for so many years is a guy named Robert Savely. Uh, Bob Savely is what they called him. Uh, Bob just retired last year after 50 years of government service. Think about that, 50 wow. years of government service. So uh, he had an extraordinary career. Uh, his last job at NASA was chief scientist of the simulation division and engineering directorate at NASA Johnson Space Center. But he was my mentor there for a number of years and uh, I learned so much from him. Uh, he taught me how to truly manage people uh, and I'm in a good way, to manage them with compassion and heart and listening. Uh, I'll tell you one quick story uh, about him that, that stuck with me to this very day. So uh, I was given a very complicated and difficult and time limited job at Johnson Space Center. I really wasn't working for them exactly, but they asked me to take on uh, this role of managing a small team. Uh, there were just four of us, me and three other people uh, doing this, this software project. And it had a very short fuse on it. It was very important to get done. And Bob entrusted me with the leadership of that particular group. Just three people, but remind you of that. So uh, I, I dug into it. I did a complete schedule for the time we had, all the tasks to be done. I really, I worked, you know, night and day for a couple of days to get this all put together, gave it to the team and said, let's get cracking here. And we got to work. And every day we met, every day, eight o'clock in the morning, we got together and met and talked about the progress from the previous day and what to be was on that day. And within two days, we were behind schedule already. And I was getting upset. And and every day we got further and further behind and I was getting more and more distraught about this. I started yelling and screaming at these guys and saying, you got to work harder. You got to work faster. We got to get this thing done. And uh, what I didn't know was that Bob was lingering outside the door uh, during these every morning meetings we had listening. Oh boy. And he was outside the door. there. So we're about a week into this now. Uh, and I'm just really, really upset at these three people. Uh, they just aren't getting the job done. And uh, so that, that morning, it was a Friday morning, uh, I walked out uh, of the meeting and Bob was out there waiting for me. He said, let's go in the office here. 
So he uh -oh. took me to his office and closed the door, which was a rare thing. Immediately closing the door was a rare thing. So I knew I was in trouble. And he turned to me and he told me some words I will never forget, Micah. He said to me this. He said, Bowen, you need those three people more than they need you. And uh, I just kind of hit me upside the head. Wow. And he said, sit down a minute. He said, I've been listening to you every morning there. And all I hear is you talking. I don't hear them saying a word. I said, yeah, that's the way it's been. And I said, well, don't you think you could listen to them and ask them, you know, why you're behind scheduled and what's going on here? What's wrong? What's happening? What needs to be done? And I said, yeah, I guess I can do that. So uh, I kind of stewed about this all weekend and came back Monday morning and we had our regular meeting at eight o'clock that morning. And I just sat there and I said, tell me what's going wrong. And I just clammed up. And they looked at each other and they looked at each other. About a minute went by, which is a long time for silence. Yes. Uh, finally, one of them said, well, you really mean, <laughs> you really want to know? And so over the next hour, they opened up to me and told me, here are the things that we're doing the wrong way. They explained what was wrong, basically. And, and from that point on, uh, I got their buy-in, and we, I listened to them a whole lot more than they listened to me. And we finished the project uh, faster than scheduled, and it was a successful thing. Uh, all wow. because they took me aside one day and told me one very important lesson and then told me to listen to these people. And I did that, and that has been a leadership principle I've used ever since. It's, not, it's obvious. Anybody who's a leader will tell you listening is important, but it's hard to do. <laughs> it's hard to do. When you think you're responsible uh, and you're in charge, quote unquote, uh, it's, it's hard to listen. It really is. And people like me who profess for a living or profess for a living for a very long time are used to talking and not listening. And so it's a very difficult thing to change your way of doing business to become a listener and not a talker. And that was something Bob taught me early in our relationship. And there are many of lessons too he taught me. That's just one I'll never forget that really did change a lot about me and about a particular project that I was leading at the Johnson Space Center. So that's one very important person there. I love that. My, my wife has been someone that I've drug around the country a few times. Um, Somehow, you have to understand, she has a PhD as well as me, um, and finding the right kind of job for two PhDs in the same town at the same time is non-trivial. And so, uh, you know, she's the one who gave birth to our two children. Uh, she's the one that's had to pick up and move when I've changed jobs uh, from time to time. And so uh, her patience and long-suffering, I have to acknowledge well. And she's been somebody that I've been able to, to talk to uh, and learn from over the years. Uh, another quick story for you. I'm interim president of Texas A&M. This happened very quickly, and we can certainly go into how that all happened at some point if we have the time for it. But uh, I, I, uh, she's working at UTMB in Galveston, an important job there. And uh, I'm asked to come from Galveston to College Station as interim president. Well, the word is interim, okay? It's temporary. This is not a permanent job here. And so she's got a permanent job down in Galveston, which she likes. And so we talk about it, and she says, well, I don't want to quit my job here. And I said, I got that. I'll just live up in the, in the president's house in, in College Station. I'll get home as much as I can. 
and we'll make it work. And in a few months, they'll be hiring somebody and I'll be back here. It's kind of the way it worked, I thought. So I, I move immediately uh, to College Station uh, after I'm appointed interim president. And uh, Elsa's departure was abrupt and, and fairly problematic for many people, how it happened and why it happened. Yep. So a lot of angry people around. <laughs> yes. So I spent uh, a lot of days listening to angry people, especially angry faculty, about this. So uh, my days were long. I would start early in the morning, get in the office around 6.30 or 7, uh, take care of things, and go into meetings almost all day into the night, get home maybe 9, 9.30 at night. And, uh, and being yelled at all day was not much fun, as you can appreciate. Uh, so uh, after about two weeks of this, I was really getting despondent about this. And I call Karen up and I say, Karen, I need either a wife or a dog. And, and she said, <laughs> so she quit her job, literally quit her job in Galveston and came and joined me then. I was kind of hoping for the dog, but I got the wife instead. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Only kidding. Only kidding. But uh, because, you know, coming home after a really hard day, day after day, with a big empty house was really hard. Uh, and I wasn't going to become an alcoholic <laughs> over that. So I wanted somebody to talk to who wouldn't judge me. And uh, a dog or my wife was the, were the two choices. I had. Sure, I, I get that. I've got four dogs and one wife. <laughs> and I definitely <laughs> it was appreciate really it. It's important for her to come down here, or come up here, I should say, and, and, uh, and be somebody that I could come to at the end of the day and, and, uh, and just really be honest with and talk to and, and talk about the hard day I had, not be judged. Uh, in some negative way because of that. And that's, that's what she did for me. It really kept me sane during a very difficult time here of uh, transition. Uh, eight months after I started here as interim president, I became the president uh, without adjective, I call it. And the uh, job didn't change. It was the same job I had. And as I said earlier to you, uh, what really helped me a lot was the fact that I had been uh, running a small campus down in Galveston, which was a microcosm of this place here at College Station. Uh, I called it Galveston Aggie Land by the Sea, and I really mean it that way. Uh, it wasn't big, but it was every piece of Aggie, of Aggieism and Aggie Land that you can imagine existed there uh, on that island. And I really learned a lot about uh, leading a campus in a place where I wasn't judged by the media as much as I was judged here, uh, yeah. where people were knowable. I could again walk the campus every single day and and drop in on people in their offices and surprise them at first, but they got used to that. Uh, I could <laughs> by wandering, you just kind of wander around the campus there and you talk to the students every day, you stop in, talk to the staff, custodial staff, maintenance staff, staff in the, in the dining center and so on. And, and uh, you drop in on faculty in their offices and talk to them. And it's, it's a great way to keep your pulse on, on the campus. Uh, I knew it was going on all the time. The pulse uh, of that. I that here in College Station. That. What I did here instead, I mean, when I was in Galveston, since when Facebook became popular. So I got on yes. Facebook right away and, and saturated my 5,000 friend limit pretty quickly. Uh, but Facebook was a way I kept up with things in Galveston. I came here and Twitter was just emerging as a social medium. So I got on Twitter and that is what I did here. I couldn't walk the campus every day completely. I could walk the campus a little bit every day. I did that. It's a large campus, yeah. I can only see a, a few, few students of a, of a very, very small fraction of those who were here every day. So I really created a Twitter account very quickly and, 
and encourage people to follow me, and they did. And uh, I said, look, just, just tweet at me or send me a DM and uh, keep me posted on what's, what's, what's on your mind. And uh, I would know stuff on this campus for anybody else outside the students knew about it. So I could call a vice president and say, do you know this is broken? And they would say, how do you know that? I said, well, <laughs> everything on this campus. <laughs> I just had, I had, I had 30,000 eyes and ears on this campus is what I had. More than that, actually, 30,000 people on this campus who were keeping track of things and letting me know about it. And it was a way to really know what was happening here and to get a pulse of the campus. The way I got in Galveston was just walking the campus. I just couldn't do it the same way. Do you, do you think that because of the conversation you had back about how you're managing your small team, do you think that that played a role in your desire to create a Twitter account that basically is just you listening to the student body, every individual student at Texas A&M? Do you think that that played any role, whether it's consciously or subconsciously? Yeah, certainly did. I mean, I, I could listen to the students and the faculty and staff in Galveston face-to-face. I could walk around the campus every day. Uh, it was a laid-back place. Uh, once they got used to me being around, uh, it was no big deal to have me drop in their offices and talk to them or where their workplace and talk to them or see the kids on the clock tower out there where they sat uh, uh, between classes and such. That was, uh, they got used to me being there. And I could sit there and say, how's it going? And just listen. Uh, that, that worked for me there. And I needed to recreate that in some way here in College Station, and I couldn't have done it the same way. And Twitter was a way to do that. Twitter is a two-way street. I mean, I, I, I sent tweets all the time, too. Uh, but those, but really what I try to do is be accessible to every single student. And thousands of students over time reached out to me through Twitter, uh, and I could learn about their challenges. I knew about roommate problems. I knew about broken pipes. I knew about, about sidewalks that were broken. I knew about all kinds of stuff. And uh, I spent probably at least two hours a day on social media completely. Just, just being on there reading the timeline and answering uh, tweets or DMs sent directly to me. Uh, that was two hours a day I committed to every day. And uh, wow. it was a lot of time, but it was an important way to keep up. So it wasn't just one way. I mean, I listened to them, but I could also get back to them. And I think the students who got those messages from me appreciated the fact that they were hearing from me. It wasn't somebody else. I could have hired somebody to have done that for me. They could have figured that out right away. Uh, yeah. And that's a terrible thing to have done. Uh, I have colleagues uh, who've been presidents and chancellors who've done just that. And I couldn't do it that way. I will tell you from personal student experience, uh, we did view it that way. We appreciated it very much. And it, it spread like wildfire how connected you were to the students to the point where we, instead of being nervous that the, the president of the university is walking up to you, it was an excited moment like, yes, he's coming to talk to me. I want to get a selfie with you. Can I please? Because we felt that connection that you weren't just the man in the high tower, but you were the person who wanted to be a part of our world, you know, here in this university. Yeah, and besides social media, Mike, I, I was out and about. I mean, I left, the, I left the office every day. If I was on campus, I left every day for an hour or more just to walk around. I walked to Coldest, 
where the student government offices are. I walk over to the MSC where a lot of students are hanging out, walk over to the academic plaza by Sully statue and, and, and stand there a while and talk to kids there. So I got out of the office too and went to see them where they were. Uh, I was very visible at athletic events. I went to almost every sport we had here, uh, every, every sport here. And, and uh, I was not a person who sat in a suite somewhere all the time uh, talking to donors. I probably should have done that, but I didn't always do that. So I would get out and about and walk Kyle Field, walk the entire stadium. I would walk around uh, Olsen Field and Bluebell Park. I would walk around uh, the soccer stadium. I'd walk wherever I, where I went to see a sporting event. I'd walk around there and I would sit with students for a while and talk to them. Uh, the Reed Rowdies and I got pretty friendly after a while. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was great to be out where they were and, and, and make them aware that they were the reason we existed. I mean, it's easy to forget when you're a president or a chancellor uh, why the university was actually formed. Why does it exist? I mean, you, you begin to think about it in terms of the money and the research and the other things you're doing here. And yeah, it's all important stuff. Well, in any way, diminish that. But fundamentally, universities were created for one reason, to educate students. And, and I don't want to forget that. So I reminded myself every day by interacting with students, uh, either directly or through social media or both, to keep me aware and thinking about the fact that we were here for them. That was an important thing. Very important. That's excellent. I, I love that. And I actually, you, you kind of touched on this probably intentionally, uh, knowing you probably did it on purpose, but I heard a rumor that while you were the president of A&M, you know, doing your rounds every day uh, as much as you could, that sometimes you would either skip meetings altogether that you had to be in, or you would just be late to meetings almost as if, and, and the rumor that I heard was your response was, well, the students are more important. So I wanted to know, I've wondered for years and I've known you for a while. I can't, I can't believe I haven't asked you this, but is that more true, more fact or more fiction? It's, it's partial fact. I mean, I, I, okay. would, I would never not show up at a meeting I was supposed to be at, but I might delegate somebody to go for me. So um, I had a chief of staff. Uh, while I was here. I, I created that office for myself, basically. And I had two different people in office while I was president. And frequently, I would say to that chief of staff, uh, I'm supposed to be at this meeting, go sit there. And I trusted them both to listen. Uh, and also, they knew me well enough to pretty well judge what I would, they wanted an opinion. The meeting wanted an opinion from, from Bowen Lofton president. They could probably guess what I would, what I would say. And they would always, I'm sure, put caveats on anything they said there, but I would make sure that someone was there to listen and necessary to say a few words. Uh, I am very punctual, so I would never be late to a meeting deliberately, but I did skip quite a few meetings that I normally would have been expected to be at. And uh, I just made sure somebody else was there in my chair to be sure that, it, that, that we were represented, basically, and I could get uh, any information back from the meeting I needed to have to be able to do my job. But, uh, you know, I, I would, I would really leave the office. Typically you have to understand the job and the job is meetings and it's paperwork. Uh, paperwork usually is signing things and sometimes lots of things. Uh, you got to read a little bit. And so that's what I would really shirk the most 
because I would just leave the office and not sign some stuff and be late. It would be late getting out of my office, basically. I wouldn't be late. To, <laughs> I'd be late getting something executed that I was expected to do. That got me in trouble a few times, certainly, with, with, with certain people, especially off-campus people. Uh, but so be it. I mean, again, my, my reason was what, what you said. It was, why are we here? This is important uh, for me to be with students every day if I'm on the campus. And I didn't want to ever shirk that. So again, I had to travel some of the time, so I wasn't always here. Uh, but I was here most of the time. And I made a point of getting out of the office every single day, uh, at least for a few minutes and hopefully at least an hour each day. I was out of the office uh, going somewhere, walking around, talking to students. And uh, just so you know, I was reviewing my, my camera roll the other day. Uh, and again, I don't have by any means all the selfies taken of me, but I had over 8,000 pictures uh, that were taken during my time at AM on my camera. Wow. <laughs> and I was reviewing those the other day uh, for somebody who wanted to get a few of them. And uh, I, I, it reminded me a lot of things. And I went through that whole roll from one end to the other. It took me quite a while to do that from the time I became wow at the time I left here in 2014. And uh, it, was, it was memory lane. It was great to walk back and have these images recall to me these great experiences I had, uh, mostly with the students and certainly some of the events uh, that we had here on, on campus. Uh, again, uh, a lot of sporting events were captured in those pictures. A lot of things uh, on the campus proper were captured. Uh, and by far the majority of those pictures have a student or, or more in them. <laughs> I imagine more often than not, there's multiples, but uh, I've yeah. seen, I've seen many of those selfies and many of the photos They're they're fantastic. What you got to appreciate is the problem of walking on campus. So uh, you know, my wife would, would, she had a job on campus most of the time we were here. And so she worked every day. And, but if we went over to uh, to Kyle Field or sporting event, and we're walking back to the house, uh, we'd be stopped every few feet. And uh, most often, the student would give the camera to Karen and say, take a picture of us. Well, after about three or four of those, she'd kind of wander away. <laughs> That'd be the end of that. And uh, when I had friends visiting with me here on campus, and we would walk back to the house after an event, uh, they got the job. They were just too polite to walk away like she was. <laughs> But uh, people got tired, I'm sure, taking pictures uh, uh, of me. And a uh, quick story about Johnny Manziel. So I, I'm carrying oh, yeah. out a baseball game, uh, and Johnny sits right down in front of me for some reason. I'm not sure why, right in front of me. I think I know this story, yes, he, and I'm he very, has, uh, he has very a glad you're sharing it. He, he, he's dating uh, uh, with him. And uh, so the moment he sits down, a line forms of all girls. And they, they line up there, and they, they – they ask Johnny for a picture and they hand the camera to his girlfriend. After five or six of those, uh, she goes to the bathroom and never comes back again. <laughs> so I lean over and tell Johnny, hopefully you learned something from this right now. I haven't learned it yet, but I hope you've learned it now. <laughs> don't want to do that with your girlfriend, okay? At least I'm married. Maybe it's a little easier. <laughs> Man, I, I remember that you telling me that story. I'm very glad that you shared it because... <laughs> That I can just imagine the face of the girlfriend just, oh my gosh. But I also well, know yeah, it's bad enough to be asked to do it a couple of times. It was a line, very long line of women. Yes. Happen. And they're all, you know, nice young ladies there wanting to do this with Johnny. And here's his girlfriend getting zero attention from him completely. That's what it is. <laughs> Goodness. 
So this is a question specifically for Aggies out there. And I've heard, again, rumors of how many it might be. And, you know, if you wore one a day, how long would that go on? Uh, but just how many bow ties do you own and which ones are either considered your favorites or sentimental or most special? And for those that don't know Dr. Lofton, he was known for wearing bow ties. So the mustache and bow tie went hand in hand. And we'd love to know how many you have. On social media, there's still lots of my followers who call me bow tie. <laughs> That's just the <an> yep. <laughs> Um I have over 400 bow ties, uh, which is by no wow. Uh You wouldn't know who Gordon Gee is. Uh, Gordon Gee is currently the president of West Virginia University for the second time. Uh, he was twice Ohio State's president, uh, once the president at Vanderbilt, Chancellor at Vanderbilt, uh, president at Brown, and so on. He's been a president seven times over almost 40 years now. Uh, so Gordon has over 1,000 bow ties, okay? <laughs> oh man. So he's your role model for bow ties. Got it. Puts me in, in the shade. Um, there's two answers to favorite bow tie question. One is my first bow tie. So I am a very young, very junior faculty member at the University of Houston downtown campus. Uh, and I dress kind of like I am right now. I've got a collared shirt on, slacks, you know, just a kind of a business casual without uh, a jacket kind of kind of place to be. That was mm -hmm. way 70s, okay? It still is, I'm sure, even maybe more so. But uh, uh, one day I walked into the office and in my mailbox, there was a memo from the president of the university. And the memo said to all male faculty, uh, from now on, you must wear a tie when you teach class. So I was furious immediately. How dare he tell me what to do? <laughs> Culture in the department there. Sure, there were some departments on the campus, like in business, where the faculty tended to wear ties if they were males. That's pretty much standard, I think. But in the science department like I was in, uh, people didn't wear ties hardly at all. Maybe the department chair did, but that was about it. So I was furious at this man. And uh, I said, I will show him I'll wear a bow tie, but I didn't even own a bow tie. <laughs> so I had a colleague uh, named Jean, and I had met her husband a few times at various social events, and he wore bow ties. So I went to see Jean. I said, Jean, I need to borrow a bow tie from Carl. Would he possibly loan me one? So the next morning, she brought me a bow tie and handed it to me and said, this is a gift from Carl to you. Uh, it's the ugliest bow tie I've ever seen in my life, bar none, but I still have it and I still treasure it. It's my first bow tie and it's an ugly bow tie. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's probably my favorite bow tie of all. It's gotten so threadbare. I understand that, that I, you know, this, is, this is audio only, but I understand when you wear a bow tie with a short neck like mine, your beard rubs against the top of the bow tie. Yep. Tends to make it threadbare after a while. Okay, bow ties do wear out. <laughs> so this bow tie is pretty threadbare right now. Uh, but the other, other part of the question or answer is this, uh, is that I have a number of bow ties I treasure. Uh, and I treasure them because they were a gift from someone special. And almost all those bow ties are from a student. Uh, one example, uh, a young man named Zach 
uh, was a student here. Uh, he now works for a company called Aflac. Yep. Right. <laughs> yeah. A certain uh, mascot, call, it's a symbol they have. It's, it's, it's a duck, yes. right? <laughs> so uh, he comes back to campus after uh, a year of graduation and gives me a box, and that box is an Aflac bow tie. So it's That's a bow tie with the Aflac duck on it. So when I wear that bow tie, guess what? I think about Zach. That's and awesome. Got a great sense of humor. It would always bring back to my mind uh, our meetings together on campus and the good times we shared, the jokes he would tell me and so on. That's an example. I have many more like that that all come about because of a gift of a bow tie, mostly from students. And those gifts make me remember that person very well and think about them. Is that the Zach that we have as a mutual friend, uh, glasses, blonde hair? Yes, that's him. Okay. You know him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was thinking, I think I know that, Zach. I wasn't sure if I should, I should mention his last name on, on air or not. I, I try not to unless that person's giving me permission or I'm interviewing them, you know, but yeah. so anyway, I, I know which one you're talking about. You know, he's, he's, we still interact fairly often. My, my big joke with him now, my running joke with him right now, every time I, I send him a note, typically, I mention the fact he's going to be a CEO of Aflac someday. And we have a good laugh about that. <laughs> <laughs> You're really quacked up whenever that joke is said, I'm go. sure. There you go. <laughs> well, Dr. Lofton, I really I appreciate this time. We haven't gotten into everything that we wanted to, that I wanted to cover, but uh, nonetheless, I appreciate your time. We'll have to have you back. Definitely twist my arm to have any chance to talk to you. Sure. Thanks for listening to the MBP today with my guest, Dr. Lofton. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed listening to his awesome stories as much as I do. He actually made my job really easy. He uh, answered my questions without me even having to ask them. That was great. I just got to listen to the story as he's telling it. Looking at the questions that I had, going, yep, he just answered that one. I will be having a follow-up conversation with him about events that happened while he was the president of Texas A&M University and while he was chancellor of the Missouri system. But nonetheless, I look forward to my conversation with him next time. I hope that you do too. If you like the content that's coming out right now at you, by all means, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. We are now on four different platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Feel free to subscribe so that you don't miss the next follow-up conversation. And as always, follow on any social media platform, except for TikTok. I haven't quite figured that one out. I don't know that I want to. It doesn't kind of fit. But on Facebook, you can join the Micah Brown Podcast page. Or you can follow me at Actual MVP on Twitter or Instagram. And finally, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, that's fine too. Just find my name, Micah Brown, and it'll make sense once you find the right profile. There's a microphone in the picture. Nonetheless, I appreciate you guys listening in uh, and for supporting the podcast. If you want to support yourself and your knowledge, don't forget about that free 30-day trial of Audible. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash MVP to get access to that. Dr. Lofton has written his own book uh, called The 100-Year Decision. It's about his time switching A&M to the SEC. We'll get into that a little bit more on the next episode, but if you want to get um, get a chance to skip ahead a little bit, go ahead and start listening to that now for free. Just get that trial up and running. Love you guys. Thank you for listening in, and we'll look forward to talking to you next week.